0: And welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda B. Fish.
1: And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor
0: Quentin. And welcome to the 160th episode of the Nauticast titled, To Kneel. Or not to deal. An analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 2, in which Jamie Lannister remains the undisputed best point of view character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire forever. And in this ch- chapter, he visits it in. What could be better than this chapter, Emmett? I ask, what could be better? Not Davos 2, of course.
1: You should just introduce every Jamie chapter that way going forward, <laughs> in which Jamie Lannister remains the undisputed greatest POV in The Song of Ice and Fire. Details to follow. Right. Just to copy and paste copy and paste that over everyone. It's another Jeff
0: Jamie episode, everybody strap in. It's going to be great. So excited. And I am also excited because this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our head of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Master Timbob, troubleshooter of systems and designer of circuit boards. Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark M. Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Hero of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragon Scarlet the Other Rope Woman, and Mistress of Whispers. Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the head of the king, Lady Z of Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club His Grace's High Quizzers Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne Kelly Ward, the East Bishops of Old Bay of Crabs Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden Stephanie, Lord Carlos Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God Sir Sorcedelica, Tit Stent The Trog Delight Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia Queer Alex, Beyoncé's Favorite Stand Herald of Sharon, Bachelor of Chromatica Exulter of Black Lives, Defender of Trans Lives Rainbow Committed of the Ids and Gentle thems, and the Anonocast non-binary not an army Haldover the way for t A A.A. Ron Dampere prophet of the forsaken and high priest of Euron Crozai Lieutenant Glenn Lord of Town, venaris of House Kogary, and the first for princess of Dragonstone Mr. Svart the report, Queen of the Pencils the eraser in the first draft Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, portraits of the Realm, Lady Realist, Seven Kingdoms, Blender, Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Chris, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corogil. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor Chief of, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Ship Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the J- See, Grave Rob Stark the Cadaver King, and Horror of Hall, Ola, proponent of a semi feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur, Day, and Prince Riker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat, Ironwood, the blood bro, and Gauron, the Boneway, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf, and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and the protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt, S. future Matt, S. the one who bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble, author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warden of the South, and patron of free-wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests the coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official Ice Master and deliverer, the valiant, pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love, Queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Rothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice Ward, the Kingswood and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms, Sir Kell, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table, Lord Travis Mentat, Master of Ships and Third Stage Guild Navigator, Lord Adams II, Lord Tyler, the Prince that promises to wait patiently for the winds of winter, Lord D B, Sister Winter, hopeful, romantic, and unrepentant shipper, Lord Monsef, and the severed head of a pr- and the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls. Thank you to all of our small council patrons. Thank you, counselors, as always. And all our spoiler warning. As we say in every episode, we'll just be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dark DeVos, histories, interviews, the Winds sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything.
1: Our question this week comes from the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls, a small council patron who asks, I am wondering, do you guys really think we won't see any more Stark kids die? I personally believe Rickon and Arya have to die before the end, if only because Jon Snow has plot armor, dying and Resurrection doesn't count, and Sansa and Bran have more roles to play. It wouldn't be George if we get to the end without any main characters dying, and Arya's plot is going towards something very dark, in my opinion. So what do you think, Jeff? Tell us all about the dead Stark kids that we're going to see. Describe their corpses in
0: detail. I mean, I think it makes sense that the severed head of a Targaryen prince rotting on the council walls would ask such a question about dead children. I'm just putting that out there right now. But I'm going to take an optimistic take about this. I don't think there's going to be any more dead Starks. I think that Rickon Stark is going to survive for reasons that Chloe will unpack at a future date. I think that Arya is also going to survive. I think... That the show basically showed Arya Stark's journey as it stands at the end of the books, where she sails away like Niberia and her 10,000 ships. I think we're going to see a bittersweet ending in the form of like Arya sailing away, Jon being exiled north of the Wall, Bram as the paralyzed king who is you know, constantly struggling between... Knowing the reality of what he's experiencing versus what he's seeing in his visions of the future, I think Sansa Stark will probably be a little bit lonely being the queen of the North without any of her family present. So I think we're going to see not any more Stark kids dying. I think I, I'm not saying it's overdone. What I'm saying is that I don't see the narrative evidence or what would be what would be done narratively speaking to conclude the story with. And Rickon is dead, and Arya is dead. Like, ooh, it's a big gut punch at the end of the story. And I don't want to take too much of a um a a point with the, this question about how it wouldn't be jo- George if we didn't get many main characters dying at the end of a story, because that isn't actually how a lot of George's stories end with the main character dying at the end of the story. I don't want to spoil anything for for anyone here, and I and, I'm, and I fully admit that I am not as fully read on George's stories as many people are in this fandom. But the ones that I've read have have not concluded that way, with the exception of one of the stories, which I I won't spoil, especially if you're listening to one of our Patreon podcasts. But that's not quite how it ends, right? I mean, you you know what I'm talking – I'm trying to allude to something here that if you know what I'm talking (laughs) about, you know what I'm talking about. But yes, enough of my rambling. Sir, what do you think? Do you think we're going to see more Star kids dead by the end of the story? I don't think so. I think the most
1: major characters who are likely to die before the end. I think whether it's in circumstances similar to the show or different from the show, are Danny, uh, Jamie, and Cersei. I think the Starks certainly have aren't going to be you know reunited in a happy family portrait ending, smiling and, and waving to the audience as we're done. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think there are are different kinds of bittersweet endings, and I. I I do I do like the ending with the show with the Starks kind of moving on to their hopeful futures, but doing so separately and doing so in a way that they're, they're, they've lost their their connection to each other, I, you know, at least uh, physically. And I think that's I think we're likely to see something like that in the books. I think, Um. yeah, with regards to Rickon, yeah, more and more I lean towards especially with his his, his dog being named Shaggy Dog. I think I lean towards Rickon uh, not amounting to all that much within the story and maybe allowed to linger on an exile or people think he's dead. I don't think uh, the the story purpose for him in season six is going to translate for the books because I don't think it's going to build up to a John Ramsey uh, battle in quite that same way. And as for Arya, I think the, the uh, big tension is about who she's going to kill, I think, rather than her being killed herself. And yeah, I, I think George doesn't... Kill characters just for the sake of killing them. I think there's there's always a specific uh, plot structure and 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 kind of emotional character moment to them. And you know, I think Rob is the Rob and Ned are the Starks who have to go because their death allows him to scatter the family and have to to rebuild separately. You know, they kind of they kind of hold the hub, they hold the center, and then the center falls apart. And the uh, the other Starks, I think, have have different fates going forward. But yeah, no, there's I mean. Plenty of, plenty of dark scenes to come involving <laughs> them and the other characters. It's, it's certainly not going to be sweetness and light. So I definitely agree uh, with the question about that. So thank you to the severed head of a Targaryen prince riding on the council walls for your question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the NotaCast podcast. You're welcome to become a sworn sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can also get show notes, free merch, access to the Nata Slack, weekly mini-sodes that we do before each episode, and of course, bonus episodes, like our analysis of the worst masterpiece of all time, <laughs> David Lynch's 1984 Dune, which we did recently.
0: Yeah, what a movie that was, and what an episode that was. In fact, when we we're recording, I just finished editing it about about forty five minutes before we we finished uh, going on coming on on cam. So yeah, what a hell of an episode and what a movie. In many, the many, many varied ways that could possibly mean. And if you are listening to this on the release date for this episode, it is out for all of you if you are a poor fellow and above Patreon. So again, check us out at patreon.com forward slash where you can get all of those awesome things that help us and help you. But enough about Patreon. In our last Jamie chapter, he had come to a romantic river jaunt with Brienne, splashed around with his pal, Robin Riger, and offered a paddle to Brienne to save her from drowning. Again, why do people think he's a bad guy? Let's find out more about Jamie's heroism in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 2. Jamie was the first to spy the inn. The main building hugged the south shore where the river bent, its long, low wings outstretched along the water as if to embrace travelers sailing downstream. The lower story was gray stone, the upper whitewashed wood, the roof slate. He could see stables as well, and an arbor heavy with vines. No smoke from the chimneys, he pointed out as they approached, nor lights in the windows. Well, I am excited to be back with Jamie, my friends. I just am, and I alone am brave enough to speak my courage of being excited about Jamie. Is that brave? I think so. Cleo says that there were people in the inn when he was last here, but Brienne puts in that they're probably all hiding, or Dead, Jamie wonders aloud if Brienne, no, sorry, gotta use her proper name here that Jamie uses. The wench is scared of dead people. Brienne glared at him. My name is Brienne. Yes. Would you like to sleep in a bed for a night, Brienne? We'd be safer than on the open river and it might be prudent to find out what's happened here. Rianne doesn't verbalize an answer. Instead, she she answers physically by driving the skiff towards the pier. They all roll out of this clown car of a skiff and head up to the dock. As they make their way up, Jamie sees a king on his knees, his hands together in fealty submission. And Jamie loves this. And he knows this place. What place is this? Sir Cleos answered, Oh, this is the end of the kneeling man, my lady. It stands upon the very spot where the last king of the north knelt before Aegon the Conqueror to offer his submission. Oh, that's him on the sign, I suppose. Torn had brought all his power south after the fall of the two kings in the field of fire, said Jamie, But when he saw Aegon's dragon in the size of his host, he chose the path of wisdom and bent, and bent his frozen knees." Jamie hears horses in the stable and determines that there are multiple horses there. He decides to find out who's home. So Jamie very normally walks up to the house and shoves the door open with his shoulder and finds himself with a loaded crossbow to his face. Behind the crossbow is a boy who demands to know lion, fish, or wolf. Jamie says he wants a capon instead and comments that crossbows are for fucking cowards. Yeah, but it'll kill you dead. Sure, Jamie replies, but Cleos will kill the boy dead. No one is killing anyone, Brienne complains. They're here for food and drink. They got money too. The boy crossbowman lowers his crossbow and tells him that if they drop their sword belts, they might feed him at this inn. Also, you come in on a telly sale? Ah, uh, well, they came from River Rum, Brienne says carefully as she and Cleos drop their sword belts. Then an older man walks in, noting that there's three of them. Would they like some horse meat? Sure, maybe some bread too. Hard bread and stalo cakes. Jamie Grin, now there's an honest in They'll all serve you stale bread and stringy meat, but most don't own up to it so freely. Oh, I'm no in I buried him out back with his woman. Did you kill them? Would I tell you if I did? The man spat like you were a wolf's work. Maybe lions. What's the difference? The wife and I found them dead. The way I see it, this place is ours now. Just going to go with Australian innkeeper. I don't know why it makes sense, but we're just going to just kind of run with that. Cleos asks where this wife is, and the innkeeper, who wasn't an innkeeper, says she's not around. Also, you losers better get gone unless, of course, you have a silver. Brienne tosses a coin to his Witcher. Wait, wrong series. She tosses a coin to the band, and he bites into it, which becomes something of a thing in this series. Interesting. He likes the taste. He then dispatches the crossbow boy to grab up some onions from the cellar. As the boy departs, Cleos asks if the boy is the man's son. Nope, just a boy. His two sons are dead. Lancers killed the first. The Flux took the other. The boy's mom was also killed by the bloody Bumbers. The innkeeper, who, in parentheses, was not the innkeeper, directs everyone to sit down, and JB grumbles internally about the clink of chains on him. He fantasizes very heroically about wrapping the chains around Brienne's neck and strangling her to death. Then it's supper time. The innkeep, who was not an innkeep, grills three horse steaks while the men drink ale and Brienne drinks cider. The innkeep asks for news of Riverrun, and Cleos tells them that Hostertelli is dying, but Edmure Tully holds the Fords against the Lannisters. Lots of war shit afoot, basically. The innkeep asks where they're going. Why they're going to King's Landing? Ah, uh, well, that might not be the best time for that. There's this guy named Stannis who has a magic sword and is besieging the city. Jamie's hands wrapped around the chain that bound his wrists, and he twisted it taut, wishing for the strength to snap it in two. Then I'd show Stannis for to sheath his magic sword. I'd stay well, well clear of the King's Road if I were you, the man went on. It's worse than bad, I hear. Wolves and lions both, and bands of broken men preying on anyone who, who they catch. Vermin, declared the Sir Clear's Wicked contempt. Such would never dare to travel, armed men. Well, begging your pardon, sir, but I see one armed man traveling with a woman and a prisoner in chains. Brienne gave the cook a dark look. Oh, the wench does hate being reminded that she's a wench. Jamie reflected, twisting in his chains again. The links were cold and hard against his flesh; the iron implacable. The manacles had chafed his wrists raw. Brienne informs everyone that she's going to follow the Trident to Maidenpool and ride the rest of the way through Duskendale and Brosby. But the innkeep says, eh, "Not so fast. That ain't going to work, as the river is blocked by sunken ships and by outlaws along the road." And the lightning and the lightning lore is about who. Barric Dondarium. He is called the Lightning Lord for his striking so fast and then disappearing. Also, he cannot die. Sure, Jamie thinks. Then we're on to Thoris Amir, a wizard with strange powers. Well, Jamie thinks he had the power to match Robert Baratheon drink for drink, and there were few enough who could say that. Jamie once heard Thoros tell the king that he became a red priest because the robes hit the wine stains so well. Robert had laughed so hard he'd spit ale all over Cersei's silken mantle. Far be it to me to make an objection, he said, but perhaps the trident is not our safest course. The cook, Inkeep, who is not a cook or an Inkeep, agrees, saying that if they don't meet Beric or Thoros, they'll hit the ruby forb and Bolton, Or maybe the Lancers are there. Or no one, Jamie puts- Brienne puts in. Uh. Sure, if you really want to try that, it is totally your funeral. Anyways, the innkeep says the party should head overland. Brienne doubts that they can make it without horses, and Jamie says, Well, there are horses right here. True, the innkeep says. Three horses. Not for sale. Sure, Jamie laughs. He'll show them the horses, though, right? Now well, Jamie is right. He always is. The innkeep shows them the three horses, a plow horse, an old white gelding, and a knight's palfrey. Not for sale, of course. Brian asks how the innkeep got the horses. The plow horse was here when the man and his wife found the inn. The gelding wandered up and the boy caught the palfrey running around with his saddle and bridle still on. The innkeep shows the bridle and Jamie sees its silver, checkered, black, and pink. Also has bloodstains on it. Well, her owner won't be coming to claim her anytime soon. Jamie examined the Palfrey's legs, counted the Geldings teeth. Give him a gold piece for the gray, if he'll include the saddle, he advised Brienne. A silver for the plow horse, and he ought to pay us for taking the white off his hands. Don't speak discourteously of your horse, sir. The wench opened the purse. Lady Catlin had given her and took out three golden coins. I will pay you a dragon for each. The innkeeper balks at the gold dragon, saying he can't ride a golden dragon to get away to eat or to eat if he's hungry. So Brienne offers up the skiff as well. The innkeep requests to taste the gold. When Brienne tosses to him, he takes a bite and thinks it tastes real enough. Back to negotiation. The innkeep can have three gold dragons and the skiff, and Brienne, Jamie, and Cleo's get the horses and provisions. They can have oatcakes and saltfish. It'll cost, though. Same with the beds. Everyone is staying the night, right? Oh, no. The man tells them that they should not go riding out at night. They're going to break one of the horse's legs. No, no, Brienne says. They'll be fine with all the moonlight about. The innkeep tries to negotiate then, saying coppers will do instead of silver. Cleos wants to stick around, and the innkeep says the covers are washed and cleaned. Cleos is real tempted again, really wanting that bed, but Jamie has a different idea on the whole thing. "'No, no, cuz. The wench is right. We have promises to keep, and long leagues before us we ought to ride on. But, 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 Cleos, you you said yourself?' "'Then, when I thought the deserted, Now I have a full belly, and a moonlight ride will be just the thing.' Jamie smiled for the wench. But unless you mean to throw me over the back of that plow horse like a sack of flour, someone had best do something about these irons. It's difficult to ride with your ankles chained together. The innkeep says there's a smithy in the back of the stable, and Brienne asked to show him the smithy. Yes, said Jamie, and the sooner the better. There's far too much horseshit about for my tastes. I would hate to step in it. Jamie gave the wench a sharp look, wondering if she was bright enough to take his meaning. I mean, just imagining like a cartoon-like kind of like big look there. They head out back and Brienne breaks only the chains off Jamie's legs but not Jamie's wrist to his chagrin. The innkeeper, who is not an innkeep tells them to head six miles come to a burnt village and then go southeast at the Fork in the road. Brienne thanks the man, and Jamie grumbles about how the innkeeper has more than thanks. He has their gold. Jamie is real fucking tired of being disregarded. Brienne ends up with the plow horse, Cleos with the palfrey, and Jamie with the one-eyed gelding. This cancels any chance of escape for the moment for Jamie. The man and the boy came out to watch them leave. The man wished them luck and told them to come back in better times while the lad stood silent, his crossbow in his arms. Take up the spear or maul, Jamie told him. They'll serve you better. The boy stared at him distrustfully. (laughs) So much for friendly advice. Jamie shrugged, turned his horse, and never looked back. Cleo's complains about not having a feather bed as they ride out, and Jamie likes being mounted. Cleo's complains about not having a feather bed as they ride out, but Jamie really likes being mounted again, even if his horse kind of drifts to the side of his good eye. But it was good for Jamie to be mounted. He had not ridden a horse since Rob Stark's archers killed his destrier at the Whispering Wood. They reached the burned village, and all the roads offered. Brienne considered them briefly, then swung her horse onto the southern road. Jamie was pleasantly surprised. It was the same choice he would have made. "'But but, but, but this is the road the inkeep warned us about,' Sir Close objected. "'He was no innkeep.' She hunched gracelessly in the saddle, but seemed to have a sure seat nonetheless. The, "'The man took too great an interest in our choice of route and those woods. Such places are notorious haunts of outlaws. He may have been urging us into a trap. <laughs> "'Clever wench!' Jamie smiled at his cousin, our host has friends down that road of adventure, the ones whose mounts gave that stable such an mem- such a memorable aroma. He may have been lying about the river as well to put us on these horses. The wench said, but but I cannot take the risk. There'll be soldiers at the Ruby Ford and crossbow and, cro- and the crossroads. Well, she may be ugly, but she's not entirely stupid. Jamie gave her a grudging smile. Love my man, giving them grudging smiles. They see a light from the tower house ahead, and they turn off the road, angling around the tower, and come back onto the road down ways. They shelter under some oak trees with a peaceful sky lit by a half moon. Off in the distance, some wolves howled. One of their horses wickered nervously. There were no other sounds. The war has not touched this place, Jamie thought. He was glad to be here, glad to be alive, glad to be on his way back to Cersei. Brienne offers to take the first watch, and cousin Cleos is soon snoring. Jamie leans against an oak, thinks about Tyrion and Cersei, and decides to find out more about Brienne. He asks if Brienne has siblings. No, no, Brienne was her father's only s- child. Jamie laughs at Brienne and says that she was going to say son, wasn't she? She is kind of a weird sort of daughter. In response, Brienne turns away and Jamie thinks that she reminds him of Tyrion. With that thought in mind, Jamie apologizes and asks for forgiveness. And that goes really, really well. Your crimes are past forgiving, Kingslayer. "'That name again.' Jamie twisted idly in his chains. "'Why do I enrage you so? I've never done you harm that I know of. You've harmed others. Those you were sworn to protect. The weak. The innocent. The king.' It always comes back to Aris. "'Don't presume to judge what you do not understand, wench. My name is Brienne.' "'Yes. Has anyone ever told you that you're as tedious as you are ugly?' Brienne declares that she is not about to be provoked by Jamie, and Jamie says he would surely totally be able to provoke her if he tried. At that, Brienne decides to interrogate Jamie. Why did you take the oath? She demanded. Why don the white cloak if you meant to betray all it stood for? Why? What could he say that she might possibly understand? I was a boy, 15. It was a great honor for one so young. That is no, that is no answer, she said scornfully. You would not like the truth. Jamie had joined the King's Guard for love, of course. The truth was that Tywin brought Cersei to King's Landing, hoping to marry her to either Viserys or to Rhaegar if Ilya Martell died in childbirth. Jaime was squire to Sir Sumner Craikol and earned his knighthood fighting against the Kingswood Brotherhood. Afterwards, he stopped by King's Landing to see Cersei, and Cersei told him that Tywin planned to marry Jaime to Lysa, but if Jaime took the white cloak, well, then they'd be close. And hey, wouldn't you know it, but there was a vacancy in the King's Guard as Sir Harlan Grandsi- Grandison died peacefully in his sleep. Aris would want a young man to replace that old sap. How about Jamie? Father would never consent. Jamie, Jamie objected. Well, the king won't ask him. And once it's done, father can't object, not openly. Aris had Sir Ellen Payne's tongue torn out just for boasting that it was the king who, had, who was the hand who truly ruled the seven kingdoms, the captain of the hand's guard. And yet father dared not try to stop it. He won't try to stop this either. But but, but Jamie said, "There's there's Castle Rock. Is it the rock you want, or me?" Jamie remembers that night quite well. They did lots of sex, had lots of sex. They were sex, basically. And Jamie thought Castle Rock was a small price to pay for to be close to Cersei. Later, a raven arrived at Castle Rock, informing Jamie that he had been chosen to join the King's Guard. He was to present himself at the Attorney of Hall to say his vows. That had freed Jamie of Lysa, but Tywin was fucking pissed. He resigned the Handship and headed back to Castle Rock with Cersei in tow. So the scheme hadn't worked, and Jamie stood guard over a mad king while four lesser dudes tried to be the hand. So swiftly did the hands rise and fall that Jamie remembered their heraldry better than their faces. The horn a plenty hand, at the dancing griffin's hand had both been exiled, the mason dagger hand dipped in wildfire and burned alive. Lord Rossard had been last. His sigil had been a burning torch, an unfortunate choice given the fate of his predecessor. But the alchemist had been elevated largely because he shared the king's passion for fire. I'd have drowned Rossard instead of gutting him. All this while, Jamie. All this while, while Jamie was reminiscing, Brienne was still there waiting for his answer. Like, how fucking long were you sitting there thinking about your past? So Jamie says that Brienne didn't know Eris the Second Targaryen. She admits that Eris was bad and cruel, but Jamie, you had sworn to protect him. Jamie knows what he swore. Brienne stands over him in disapproval over what he did. Jamie comments that they're both Kingslayers. Whoa, 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 whoa! Wait a fucking minute. Brienne never killed Bruce Renly. She would kill anyone who says that she killed Renly really that's what cleo says you're gonna kill him and you might also want to kill lots and lots of people because lots and lots of fucking people are spreading the tale lies lee catlin was there when his grace was murdered she saw there was a shadow the cattle guttered and the air grew cold and there was blood oh very good jamie laughed your wits are quicker than behind i confess it when they found me standing over my dead king i never thought to say no 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 it wasn't me it was a shadow a terrible cold shadow Jamie laughed again. Tell me true. One Kingslayer to another. Did the Starks pay you to slit his throat? Or was it Stannis? Had Renly spurned you? Was that the way of it? Or perhaps your moon's blood was on you? You know what they say? Never give a a sword when she's bleeding. Jamie thinks that Brienne is going to fucking punch him, and I would totally support that in this moment. And he thinks that he can snatch the dagger from her, but Brienne doesn't move. She stands there and offers him just a little bit more of her mind. "'It is a rare and precious gift to be a knight,' she said. "'Even more so a knight of the King's Guard. "'It is a gift given to a few, a gift you scorned and soiled, "'a gift you desperately want one can never have.' "'I earned my knighthood,' Jamie said. "'Nothing was given to me. "'I won a tourney at thirteen when I was yet a squire. "'At fifteen, I rode with Sir Arthur Dane "'against the King's Wood Brotherhood "'and he knighted me on the battlefield. "'It was the white cloak that soiled me, "'not the other way around, To so spare me your envy.' The gods have neglected to give you a cock, not me. Jamie knows the look that Brienne is giving him. It's pure fucking loathing, totally understandable, and totally reasonable. Brienne would kill Jamie C for her vows, but, and he kind of, though, respects that she's open about her loathing, because everyone else is just kind of like fucking talking about him behind his back. Brienne heads out, and Jamie falls asleep hoping to dream of Cersei. Instead, jamie dreams of Ares pacing in his throne room covered in scabs and fresh cuts as he always cut himself on the throne the golden armor not the white but no one ever remembers that would that i had taken off that damn cloak as well when Ares saw the blood on this blade he demanded no if it was lord rosserts i want him dead the traitor i want him his head you'll bring me his head or you'll burn with the rest all the traitors rosserts says they're inside the walls he's going to make them a warm welcome who's won? who's rosserts answered jamie Aris's eyes grew massive then, and he shit himself as he ran for the iron throne. Jamie pulled Aris off the throne and slit his throat. He thought that that was too easy. Kings should die harder than that. Rostered, anyways, trying to fight back, all alchemists like Sir Ellis Westerling and Lord Craco had come into the throne room at that point and saw the end of it. So Jamie knows that he's. So Jamie knew that they'll know who to assign the. So Jamie knew that they all know who to assign the praise or blame to, and he knows from the looks that he's going to be blamed. Roland Crakehall told him that the castle and city belonged to the Lannisters. Half true. Targaryen loyalists were dying as Amory Larch and Gregor Clegane were scaling the walls to make his hold fast. And Ned Stark and his army were coming to the city. Anyways, what are Jaime's orders? Tell him the Mad King is dead, he commanded. Spare all those who yield and hold them captive. Should they maybe proclaim a new king? And Jaime knows what they're really asking. Should they proclaim Tywin or Robert? Maybe Viserys. Jamie looked down at Eris' blood pulling around his body. Proclaim who you bloody well like, he told Krakal. Then he climbed onto the Iron Throne and seated himself with his sword across his knees to see who had come to claim the kingdom. As it happened, it had been Eddard Stark. You had no right to judge me either, Stark. In his dreams, the dead came burning, gowned in swirling green flames. Jamie danced around them with a golden sword, but for everyone he struck down, two more arose to take his place. Brian woke him with a boot in the ribs. The world was still black and it had begun to rain. They broke their fast on oatcakes, salt fish, and some blackberries that Sir Cleos had found and were back in the settle before the sun came up. And that is the synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 2. Can you tell that I fucking love Jamie chapters? <laughs> I've been talking enough. What did you think, sir? So, this is a
1: transitional chapter for Jamie, which makes sense. His first chapter established him as a POV but we need to spend more time with him, and Brienne, before things get real bad real fast with the Bloody Mummers. We need a sense of the emotional stakes as well as the physical ones, and that's what this chapter provides. We see how Jaime responds to Brienne's contempt for him. We see how he navigates the treacherous environment of Westeros at war. Above all, we see how he relates to himself, his memories, his dreams, and the fragmented self-image that results from them. We come out of this chapter with a deeper understanding of how Jamie's mind works. That's what makes it so effective when he loses his hand and everything changes.
0: You know, I think that's that's absolutely accurate, and I love that. I love that so much, and and I love just that sense of dynamic of changing. And I think that starts to feed into why this is my favorite kind of Jamie chapter. I know it's not a very like climactic or action packed Jamie chapter. We're going to get that. Real strong next week, uh, next week, the next Jamie chapter rather, but I kind of like these slower chapters. I love the Jamie and Brianne bickering, Jamie exercising a surprising intelligence here and in Jamie and Brianne sparring over what it means to be a knight and a ton of fascinating backstory work for the end of Robert's Rebellion told from a completely different context from the one that we had experienced in earlier Chapters, especially from Nedard, Edder, Nedard, from or Stark's point of view in A Game of Thrones. In a, in a way, that's, that's a good touch point for here, because this chapter is a response to A Game of Thrones Editor 3, where Ned remembers Jaime on the Iron Throne. In another way, this chapter works as a prologue of sorts to A Storm of Swords, Jaime 5, when the revelations at, Her- at the Harrenhal bath scene. And that is one of the best chapters in the entire series. But did I mention the inn? Because you know it's a good chapter when it takes place in an inn. Catelyn, Catelyn five from Game of Thrones, Arya three from a, from A Storm of Swords, Jamie two from A Storm of Swords, Brienne seven from from A Feast for Crows, Arya eleven from uh, the, end the, or the end where the where they meet the the mountain All these inn chapters are just great. George has said every chapter is song by some fire in an in going forward. I think.
1: What better place to hang out? Jamie one was all about the feeling of being in motion again, right? But Jamie two is mostly focused on a single location, the inn of the kneeling man. The river signified rebirth for Jamie, as we talked about, but also death. The women hanged for serving his family's men. The inn represents both, life and death. George describes the building as having long, low wings that seem to embrace travelers. Is it a friendly hug or a trap? You can check in anytime you want, but will you be allowed to leave? Cleos remembers how much better things were when he passed this way. Same thing he said when they found the dead women. He said, oh, I remember when they were working at the local inn. The war has taken its toll on the Riverlands. Everything is being destroyed. Then again, that's what makes the inn tempting, or so Jamie argues. How many chances will they get to sleep in an actual bed with things going this poorly? But Jamie's words are always at war with Jamie's thoughts. In his head, we see that his actual plan is to find a horse and escape. So we're back to the theme of freedom that defines a storm of swords. Contrast that with the image outside the inn, that of a kneeling man, the opposite of freedom. This is where Torrhen Stark, last king in the North, surrendered to Egon the Conqueror. Jamie says they couldn't have asked for a better place. I wanted to get your opinion on uh, why is that? What is the connection Jamie sees there? Maybe he's making fun of Rob, saying he should have the wisdom to bend his frozen knees, or maybe he's thinking about the Mad King, as he will at length later in the chapter. Jamie knelt to him as a Kingsguard knight
0: at first, anyway. So, what do you think? That's, that's a great question. That I love your theories. I think they are just as there. There's, there's no. There's, it doesn't. It's not explicit in the chapter. I like to think that it's it's Jamie like really enjoying the reversal because I, I think he's hmm. laughing because of the inversion of what happened to him back at the end of the Battle of the Whispering Wood because there Jamie defeated Jamie was forced to his knees by Stark Bannerman in front of Robb and Catelyn and kind of like made to feel real low uh, by by these Stark Bannerman and now Jamie is in front of the spot where King Torrhen Stark the last king bent the knee to the Targaryens now beyond the humor if you can call it that. A big part of what I like about this inn and what it represents is how it shows real politic of a sorts. Sometimes to save lives, you bend the knee to the dragons. Sometimes fighting to the bitter end is futile. But Aegon the Conqueror and his sister wives, for all of their faults, displayed clemency to those who bent the knee. But what happens when surrender doesn't mean clemency? When cr- when common practices of war and peace are subverted? It's a pure, pure hypothetical at this point, right? <laughs> it's not. Sadly for Jamie, it’ll be even less hypothetical when he returns to the Lance and feast for crows and after the red wedding. The blackfish will refuse to surrender Riverum because there is no guarantee that he and his people will be safe if they surrender. but it's, it’s not as though the bonds of human practice were shattered by one event known as the red wedding, because that dissolution of social norms was a much more long, slow burn, as Jamie Brienne, and Cleos are about to discover in this inn.
1: Yes, they're greeted at the door by the opposite of a bended knee, a crossbow, right in the face. Jamie calls it a coward's weapon. He snarks that he's in chains because he killed some crossbowmen. Jamie's scorn for archers is inextricable from his self-image as the ultimate swordsman. Fighting with sword, hand to hand, that takes courage. But that self-image suffered a massive blow at the Whispering Wood, like you were saying. So now Jaime has to project that tough exterior to mask his shame. It's no longer who he is instinctively, it's who he's trying to be. While he's been in that cell under Riverrun, the war has swept over the Riverlands, remaking everything and everyone in its own image. The people living here don't have the luxury of preferring swords to crossbows, and they, you know, couldn't afford swords anyway. They need whatever weapon they can to protect themselves not only from the Lannisters, but the Starks and Tullys as well. That's the first we hear from the small folk in Jamie's chapters. Are you lion, fish, or wolf? This follows up on the dead small folk we saw, on the, the, with the, the sign reading, they lay with lions around their neck, which exposed to the atrocities being committed by Rob's men, as well as Tywin's. The kid with the crossbow is not relieved to see them flying Tully colors, and the guy running the inn doesn't know who killed his predecessor, the actual innkeep. He says, likely it were wolves' work, Or maybe lions. What's the difference? Hmm. That's the state of things in the war. Everyone's identity is inverted. Everyone has to make things up as they try to survive pure chaos. The resulting tone in this chapter is a mixture of menace and farce. On the surface, this is a funny scene. George keeps calling our host the innkeep who wasn't an innkeep, which feels like a line out of a children's story (laughs) or something. Jamie keeps tossing out witty one-liners, sarcastically thanking the not an innkeeper for being honest that the food sucks, mocking his feigned reluctance to sell the horses, rolling his eyes at how much Brianne offers. But really, the humor comes from the absurdity of the entire situation. Everyone acting like this is just a normal night at an inn, even as they're <laughs> surrounded by death and can't possibly trust one another. There's this palpable tension of watching the performances break down, the destruction of the war creeping in from every corner. This is a family business. Kind of. The boy isn't actually the man's son, but a war orphan he took in with his wife to guard them at night. Where is his wife, by the way? Don't ask, he says. This is what domestic life looks like in war. Everyone is separate. Everyone is suspicious. He sells them horses, like any kindly NPC is <laughs> supposed to do, the jumpstart your quest narrative. It's what yes. Barlam and Butterbird does in Lord of the Rings, the kindly innkeep in the, in the town of Bree. But... This guy in this chapter, he only does it because he's in league with the very outlaws he warns them about. George dips his toes into the mystery genre here as Jamie slowly realizes, hey, there's not enough horses to get this stable as messy as it is. Someone else has been here recently, and they might be coming back. As Jamie says, there's too much horse shit around here, both literally and metaphorically. The not an innkeep is lying to them. He's full of shit.
0: You're right about that, as so we're gonna find out when we get to Arya's first couple of Storm Sword chapters, and I promise we will return to Arya soon enough, don't you worry. This inn is the haunt of the Brotherhood Without Banners. All that horseshit is we'll find out is from the multiple horses ridden by Harwin, Jack B. Lucky, Greenbeard, and probably many others who have been using this inn as a kind of waypoint in their quest to bring down the Lannisters. This is also why the whole negotiation over the price of horses is really kinda of horseshit too, isn't it? exactly
1: this negotiation over the horses it's a farce on multiple levels as jamie says brienne is getting ripped off paying way more than the horses are worth then again as the not an innkeep says what's the money worth unlike danny he can't ride his three dragons these three golden dragons they're offering him he can't eat them if he's hungry the war has broken down the structures that make currency work in peacetime he would take the money without hesitation It would help him save up for large expenditures or to take care of his wife in their old age. But the war has made it so there's nothing to buy and no one to buy it from. And the war has made it much less likely that they will survive to an old age in the first place. All that matters now is surviving as long as you can. So friendly commerce between neighbors has been replaced by a crossbow at the door. Trust is a major theme of Jamie's chapters, and mutual trust is necessary to make currency work. After all, the not an innkeep doesn't think he's giving up those horses for long anyway, no matter how much Brienne pays for them. The plan, as we'll learn in in a later Arya chapter, is for the Brotherhood to take those horses back. So everything is breaking down. Family bonds, the national currency, even guest right. It's a war of all against all. And this is the Red Wedding in miniature.
0: That's exactly right. The Red Wedding was the culmination of human norms that have been eliminated by the war, especially in the Riverlands, as opposed to just this one event that just shattered all the norms. And while Tywin's conduct in the Riverlands was the genesis of of this decline, it's not like the Northmen have clean hands either here. They lay with lions, was that note? That, and there was that note here that the wolves probably killed the original innkeeper. That shows how the norm breaking is not just a Lannister phenomenon in the war. This is continuing the theme from Jamie 1, where Jamie sees how war has changed the Riverlands and really Westeros as a whole. Sex workers are hanged. People run away rather than meet newcomers. The bonds of friendship are disappearing, dissipating. In times past, this inn was probably a place of sanctuary and the innkeeper, the one was originally owning this place would have self interest in ensuring the travelers didn't get fucking robbed when they were arriving at his inn the the line that the innkeeper says it really struck me on this reread these days a man needs someone to keep watch while he sleeps kind of a devastating line when you think about it and later when the party is moving through the terrain after the inn they encounter a watchtower you know at times past a watchtower might be a presence for safety and security as you're moving through the countryside But they move away from it rather than try their luck visiting it. They don't know who's there. They could be robbed there. And you mentioned Lord of the Rings earlier, and I think that's such an interesting friction point between two giants of the genre of fantasy. In Lord of the Rings, by and large, scarcity and war drove people to work together with some very notable exceptions. It's not quite the case here in the Riverlands in a song of ice and fire. Scarcity and war have driven people to live suspiciously with some Exceptions. The innkeeper, who was not an innkeeper, may be ripping off the company with the idea that he'll get even more money when the party gets robbed down the road. But he did take in a boy from the war, allegedly, and I think he's probably telling the truth here. But all of that desperation was caused by the overall war happening, which killed one of the man's sons, the original innkeeper and the boy's family, too. I think that's the thematic element of A Song of Ice and Fire that I like. War can bring out the best of people and also selfishness, too and the individual person. But overall, war is breaking the world down at the macro level, and that is filtering and bleeding down to the individual relationships in this story. I think
1: that's, that's a perfect way of putting it, that what war brings out of the individual can depend on the individual, but the overall effect is this steady degradation and this kind of crumbling of, of trust and possibility, even for the most well-intentioned of people. I think that's exactly right. And that theme of trust applies to Jamie and Brienne's relationship as well. As I was saying, even as he tempts Brienne with a knight at the inn, what Jamie is really thinking about is stealing a horse from the stable and taking off on his own. So trust is at war with freedom, the other major theme here. Jamie is conscious of his chains throughout this chapter, resenting them, hating Brienne for keeping him in this powerless state, always blaming her in his thoughts. Then again, Brienne has a cage of her own, gender. Jamie's only power over her is that he's a man and a knight, and that she is neither. So he calls her wench instead of by her name. When the not-an-inkeep doubts her ability to fight off outlaws, Jamie thinks that Brienne hates being reminded that she's a woman. Women aren't supposed to wear armor and fight, but Brienne does, with more skill and more honor than most men. Women aren't supposed to take charge over men, but Brienne proves herself more canny than Cleos Frey. Like Jamie, she figures out that the not-an-inkeep is lying to them. Jamie thinks he's tired of being disregarded by this huge, ugly cow of a woman. His, his anger at being treated like this for him is connected to her gender and her gender presentation. But then she strikes off his leg irons so he can ride, as he hasn't done since The Whispering Wood, giving him a little freedom. And when she demonstrates her intelligence, Jamie reluctantly concedes, in his thoughts anyway, that she's not stupid. Jamie is gradually coming out of his shell. Years of alienation have cut him off from humanity. He's not used to treating others with respect. In large part because he feels like no one treats him with respect. We saw the first sign of a change in Jamie's first chapter in this book, right? At the end when he planned to hit Brienne with his oar, but wound up reaching out to her with it instead. And he was kind of unconscious. He didn't even think about doing it. It just happened. That continues in this chapter as they make camp in a quiet little oasis. Jamie thinks the war hasn't touched this place. And for once, he's happy. He's glad to be alive. And he's glad to be on his way to Cersei, the anti-Brienne. The only people Jaime cares about are his family. And that's what leads to him thawing with Brienne. He asks if she has siblings. She says she's her father's only daughter, but she almost says son. And with a bully's instincts, Jaime senses her weakness. She feels caught in between the roles of daughter and son, as she'll tell the elder brother in A Feast for Crows. She delivers that very emotional monologue about her father, a daughter. He deserves that. A daughter who could sing to him and grace his hall and bear him grandsons. He deserves a son, too. A strong and gallant son to bring honor to his name. Galadin drowned when I was four and he was eight, though. And Alisan and Ariane died still in the cradle. I am the only child the gods let him keep. The freakish one. Not fit to be a son or a daughter. Jamie pokes at that wound. No wonder you think of yourself as a son, because you're not a proper daughter. This hurts Brienne, as of course it does. She hasn't done anything wrong. All she's done is failed to live up to rigid gender roles. The idea that there are two kinds of people, as Melisandre says, there are not seven, there are two. And you have to be one. And if you don't fit that image, you're a worthless freak to be mocked. And even as Jaime reinforces this norm, he realizes that it doesn't just hurt Brienne. It also hurts his brother Tyrion. It has his entire life. Jamie thinks that Brienne and Tyrion seem nothing alike at first. The tall, wim- the tall woman in armor, the short man whose primary weapon is his mind. So what do they have in common? How they're treated. They face dehumanizing scorn every day of their lives. We've already seen how Tywin treats Tyrion, his own son. We'll learn more about how Brienne has been treated by her own comrades in arms. Tyrion told us that Jaime was the only one who was ever kind to him. Now Jaime realizes... That he's become like everyone else who mocks Tyrion. And he doesn't want to be like that. We will learn more about why when he reveals the truth about Taisha, But in the moment, it's significant because this is when Jaime starts to take responsibility for his own behavior. He makes himself vulnerable, asking Brienne to forgive him and calling her by her name. It's a bridge between them, like the oar he held out. But Brienne lashes out right back. Your crimes are beyond forgiveness, Kingslayer. Both of them are treating each other with contempt, because that's what the conventional wisdom suggests they should do. Brienne is a freak and Jamie is a monster. We're all shaped by the wounds we take. These two are weaponizing their pain and turning it against each other. Maybe they can get past that, and realize that the problem is the norms they wear like chains. If it's wrong for society to treat me this way, then why am I treating you this way? Jamie hates being called Kingslayer, as Brienne hates being called Wench. If Jamie can see parallels between Tyrion and Brienne despite their surface differences, maybe the same applies to him and Brienne. So Jaime tries to start over, tries to like reboot their relationship. Why do you hate me when I've never done you harm? Because you've harmed others, Brienne says. I think George intends for Brienne to stand in for the reader, the first time reader at this point. We might hate Jamie as he seems to embody everything that's wrong with Westeros. He violated his oaths to protect the weak, the innocent, and the king, Jamie finishes. <laughs> How dare she judge him for that? She doesn't understand. The irony is that Brienne didn't mention the Mad King at all. Jamie brought him up, unprompted. He's internalized his pariah status. He's gotten so accustomed to wearing arrogance
0: like armor that he can't drop it. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't realized that Jamie immediately goes to Ares unprompted. And that's not at all how Brienne is framing the initial question to him. Like, you've harmed others, those you've sworn to protect, the weak and the innocent. And Jamie immediately jumps to Ares, the king. It always goes back to Ares, becomes something of a mantra for Jamie in his chapters in A mm-hmm. Storm of Swords, because Brienne was trying to get at that killing Ares is not even Jamie's worst crime. There was that whole having an incestuous relationship with Cersei and cuckolding the king, fathering his own children with his sister. And then there's this other kid we might have heard about, Bran Stark. Anyone? Anyone? Bran? How fascinating is it that Jamie thinks so little of tossing Bran out of the window back in Winterfell? I think this is Jamie's human nature roaring out, and that he has this cognitive dissonance in wanting to focus on the crime that he could be absolved of—at least in his own mind. That said. Jamie's killing of Eris was a monstrous crime, in quotation marks, in the eyes of Westeros. His name, Kingslayer, was the one Jamie was always known by, even if the killing of Eres was a justifiable act, as we'll find out later on.
1: So Jamie falls back on insults. That's another part of his armor, right? He says, Brienne, you're as tedious as you are, ugly. Brienne says he won't provoke her. Jamie says he might, if he cared enough to try. They're both playing that game where you pretend not to care. I'm not mad. I'm actually laughing. This is fun for me. But it's really not. How do we get past that game? Brienne finally asks the question no other character has asked. The question the audience needs to ask. Why? Not why did you kill Eris? that will wait for the bathtub at Harrenhal. Brienne wants to know why Jamie joined the Kingsguard at all. She's assuming that he meant to betray his oath from the start. So why do it? Jamie says he did it for honor and glory. I was the youngest ever to wear the white cloak. Brienne says that's no answer, and she's right. Honor and glory are abstractions that don't account for individual complexities, the motives we acquire just while living our lives. What's real for Jamie is love. He joined the Kingsguard for love. But he can't tell Brienne that, because the love he felt was for his sister. Cersei was the princess in the tower right? Jamie, the idealistic young knight who dedicated his life to duty in order to be near to her. They stole away in the dead of night to a different inn. Cersei dressed up as a peasant woman, which only excited Jamie all the more. After that night, he was happy to give up everything, even Casterly Rock, to be with her always. That is a pitch-perfect chivalric romance on the surface, (laughs) but beneath the surface, this is the story of an unhealthy relationship that ruined Jamie's life. Not only is Cersei his twin sister, adding a dose of narcissism to their dynamic, but she clearly manipulated him into this. And not only that, it didn't work. Tywin was so furious about losing his heir that he resigned his position and took Cersei with him back to the Rock. Jaime wound up watching his father's successors as Hand rise and fall, facing exile or worse as their fate. No wonder he became so bitter. Now we're beginning to get a sense of how Jaime turned out this way. He's a disillusioned romantic, a child star who grew up into a cynical world. Jamie says it was the white cloak which soiled him, not the other way around. And that's a vital line for his character, following up on his oaths monologue to Catalin. The problem isn't our failure to live up to moral standards. The problem is the standards themselves, as with our gender roles, and the two are connected. Jamie thinks that Brienne resents what he's done with his knighthood because she wants it so desperately and can't have it because of her gender. Blame the gods for not giving you a cock, he says. Jaime uses gender roles to distance himself from Brienne and her contempt. What do I care what this improper woman says? But she probably killed Renly because she was on her period. I don't have to engage in any self-reflection. Brienne protests that it was a shadow which killed Renly. And we know that's true, but it sounds ridiculous to Jamie, And that makes him happy. If Brienne's a hypocrite who's just like him, then he doesn't have to self-reflect. Jamie's beginning to crack... But he's also pushing back. And I think that's that's very realistic.
0: Yeah, because he had joined the Kingsguard for love, of course. It's such a great line because it lines up with how readers were first introduced to Jamie back in a Game of Thrones brand too. The things I do for love were the words Jamie said before he tossed Bran from the window. And even if George hadn't fully fleshed out Jamie back in a Game of Thrones, George took time to note that Jamie said this with loathing in his voice. Mm-hmm. There's an echo of that line here the things i do with the things i do for love with how jamie ended up in the king's guard jamie at some level wanted casterly rock to be only a knight and a lord but his love for cersei drove him elsewhere i agree that the white cloak soiling jamie is very important as a very important line for jamie's characterization and character growth but i do think that there's a sense that there's a even deeper level of meaning in that and that there's uh, almost this poisonous nostalgia at work with jamie because like Robert Baratheon before him, Jamie looks on his teenage years prior to him being named to the Kingsguard with nostalgia, that kind of glow that the past can always seem to some people as they age up in years. He was a squire to Lord Cracol and had earned his knightly spurs fighting against the Kingswood Brotherhood along with our Sir Arthur Dane. And later, Jamie will contrast his experiences in the Kingswood with the idea of how he wanted to be Arthur, Day- Arthur Dane, but had become the Smiling Knight instead. But even then, all that nostalgia again is poisonous because Jamie was using his sword in violence as a mere teenager. We talked about this a couple weeks ago with with Daenerys Targaryen and Danny's first chapter with Rhaegar Targaryen. That it's kind of a sad state of affairs that we have teenagers who are saying to themselves, "I need to take up the sword, put aside the books, and take up the sword because that's what I was meant to do." That's poisonous nostalgia at work for Jamie here in this chapter.
1: It's like with with Waymar Royce that he was acting like a man of the Night's Watch in the prologue, but. When Will saw his body, he thinks, oh, he's just a boy. That's really what he looks like now. And Jamie is fighting to keep that kind of scared, fragile child of himself away from public view, keep it inside. He can use contempt to hide from Brienne, but he can't hide from himself. He hopes to dream of Cersei, the love for which he put on the White Cloak. He dreams instead of where that love led him, to Eris. The Mad King is terrifying, but also pathetic. Pacing, picking at his scabs, going on paranoid rants. George describes his, quote, royal mouth and the royal color of his purple eyes before telling us he died shitting himself and squealing like a pig. Jamie thought that a king should die harder than this. What does it mean that he was crowned and anointed, as Brienne says, when in the end, he dies like anyone else? The dragon skulls just watched and did nothing. They're dead and gone, and without them, the Targaryens just aren't special anymore. In this dream, we get hints of what the Mad King was really up to. Rossert has gone to, quote, make a warm welcome for Tywin, and Jaime dreams of the dead surrounded by green flames like wildfire. But that's not the focus. Not yet. The focus here is on Jaime's identity, who he became as a result. Jaime Lannister died, and the Kingslayer was born. There's a conflict in this dream between his family name and his Kingsguard cloak. He says he was wearing his golden armor as he killed the Mad King. Everyone forgets that implying that he was acting as a Lannister first. And that's reinforced when Tywin's men burst into the throne room. Jamie sees blame in their eyes, but no surprise, because he had been Tywin's son before a Kingsguard knight. And that's just, there's something so unfair about that, that he was expected to do it and now he's being blamed for it. His hmm. identity is a paradox. He was expected to do this as Jamie Lannister, but once he does, he's hated for it as an oathbreaker. Robert's rebellion temporarily broke down the social order before it snapped back into place. And Jaime considers that in this moment, he could crown anybody. The the country could go in any direction. (laughs) But then he thinks that Viserys and baby Aegon have the Mad King's blood in them. So nothing will change. And this is the moment Jaime became a nihilist. The implication here in this dream is that Jamie killed the Mad King to save Tywin's life. Like we get this emphasis that the Mad King's new hand is going to, to kill Tywin. So you get, the, oh, maybe that's why Jamie did this. But even that isn't the full story. We're being shown the limits of our perspective, how we have projected more than we realize onto Jamie, just like Brienne does. So her question of why is what will drive us forward.
0: You had no right to judge me either, Stark. Or you had no right to judge me either, Reader or mm. don't presume to judge what you do not understand, wench, or don't presume to judge what you do not understand, reader. These are meta moments in the narrative, a signal that we as readers need to question our initial judgment of Jamie Lannister. And this is a huge reason why I love Jamie chapters. It makes us reconsider our prejudgments of Jamie, make us reconsider our biases. Like you said earlier, I think We're a lot like Brienne in this chapter. Sure, Ares was violent and clearly clearly having a long-term psychological break, but Jaime was supposed to guard the king. That's his societal role, the structure that he's fixed himself to. But what happens when your vows come into conflict, or if the king tells you to kill your dad? It's that continuation of that theme from Catelyn's final chapter in A Clash of Kings. Vows and vows, they make you swear and swear. And yet, we as readers don't know the full story yet. Even here, we think, well, obviously, being ordered to kill your dad is a real conflict, but, you know, your dad is a fucking war criminal rapist and murderer. So you got to do what you're ordered to, right? Ultimately, that's what we got to come down to. It's as we learn why that a full picture of the humanized version of Jamie Lannister begins to emerge that only gets more palpable and more profound as we get to later and later Jamie chapters in A Storm of Swords. So I think that's going to wrap us up for our depth portion of the episode. Moving on to foreshadowing groundwork. We do have this whole scene taking place at the end of the Kneeling Man, which might, might foreshadow something that we're going to find out in a later book in A Song of Ice and Fire. Namely that Torn bending the knee to Aegon might foreshadow Jon Snow as King of the North bending the knee to Daenerys. I think that's quite possible here. You know, history, as George likes to say, is a... Is uh, a wheel, things are just kind of happening in motion and things are happening over and over again. And I think we could see that potentially happening in the Dream of Spring. What do you think? I think
1: so. The desire for Northern independence and kind of the pendulum swing back towards control of Westeros from the south is something we've already seen before and something that could happen again in the future of Westeros. And I, I think – uh, you know, Rob is the one who won't won't bend his frozen knees. You know whether he's wise or not to do so. We'll talk about it later in Storm of Swords. But I think that that could stand in contrast with John initially making the decision to to join Daenerys. Initially, we'll we'll see where yeah. that goes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, Jamie also mentions Eris's other hands, the ones that uh, followed in Tywin's footsteps. He mentions a Horn of Plenty hand, who is Owen Merriweather, and his grandson Orton will become important in A Feast for Crows. Jamie also mentions the Dancing Griffin Hand, who's even more important. That's John Connington, and I think um, I wanted to get your take on this. I think George clearly came up with John Con while writing A Storm of Swords because he's mentioned multiple times. It comes up later on in an Arya chapter uh, about the Battle of the Bells, and Jamie mentions Dancing Griffins being exiled. So clearly, that's in the works.
0: I think you're you're, you're right. I think John Connington, the Golden Company, and the Blackfire Pretenders are things that George invents mm-hmm. between A Clash of Kings and A, and a Storm of Swords. When you look at it, you can see George's gardening at work because we have a, a spare mention in one of Tyrion's earlier chapters in A Clash of Kings where he's talking with Littlefinger, I think in his first chapter. And Littlefinger says, ah, well, I would not want to take this position given all the – what's happened to all the the two hands of the kings that have gone before him. And Tyrion's like, four, four hands of the kings. There were two that are exiled and mm-hmm. the later two have died. I think it's – we we see George kind of guarding his way towards John Connington and the Merryweathers having a, a place in the story, and and John Connington is mentioned by name back in Daenerys one for the first time, and of course George talks a lot about how the Golden Company is going to be very important in future volumes of A Song of Ice and Fire. Royce, he's about to publish A Storm of Swords, so yeah, this is this is obviously George guarding his way and kind of subtly setting the the, the groundwork for the rise of of the black dragons and, and the backstory and the rise of the new secret black dragon wearing the colors of red and the new version of the story with the sixth Aegon of the Aegon sixth of his name, but probably not. Another bit of foreshadowing here is that Jamie fantasizes about strangling Brienne with his chains, which serves as an as immediate foreshadowing for how Tyrion will strangle Shea with the hands chain. But it may be foreshadowing for how Jamie will strangle the anti-Brienne that is Cersei in a fun way. Fun way? Probably not. Hands of gold. The hands of gold thing we start to see in uh, that song that we're going to find out later in, in Tyrion's chapters. That might foreshadow Jamie's Strangling of Cersei while strangle the chains from Jamie's chapters foreshadows Tyrion's action. It's fun, right? It's not.
1: It's uh, We're going to see it again next week with Tyrion too when Tyrion thinks the whole chapter, oh, I can't allow Shay to be hanged. I have to save her from being hanged. When, of course, he's ultimately the one to strangle her. And, yep, that's hmm. a that's a potent... A symbol of the downfall of House Lannister. You have the, the golden hand standing in for uh, the hand of the king position, and how wealthy they are. But it comes to mean Jaime's severed hand, and ultimately uh, Tyrion's hands. Uh, Tyrion's hand in the necklace he uses to kill Shay. It's a it's it's a, a brutal conclusion in the Storm of Swords mm-hmm. that we'll get to down mm-hmm. the line. We get reminded here not only of Beric Dondarian, the not an innkeeper brings him up saying he's fighting in the area, but we also get reminded about his partner in crime, Thoros of Mir, that we haven't heard much about of late. Jamie tells us about his reputation as Robert's drinking buddy, so we recognize the change in him when Arya sees him beneath the hollow hill. And Arya thinks that too. Is that Thoros? That can't be Thoros. I remember a bald <laughs> fat guy who was always getting drunk, and Thoros looks totally different because like Beric, he's changed a lot since last we've seen him.
0: I, I the thing I also love too is is how uh they describe Barrikon as the Lightning Lord because he strikes so fast and then withdraws. And then you're like, right? Well, kind of. No, I mean, yes, but no. I mean, that makes sense. But his, the fact that his sigil is is of the lightning that are that are striking um, for for Barrikon the House rather, is is why he's he's known as the Lightning Lord. And, and I and I do think there's that bit of kind of fun. Uh, Aspects of A Song of Ice and Fire, where sometimes the characters, especially the noble characters, resemble the heraldry of their house, and George loves to kind of play with that. uh, Mm -hmm. There, but uh, yeah, I I think it's it's so much fun too when we're like building up to the Brotherhood Without Banners. Like George does a ton, spends a ton of time like building these guys up. So when when they actually appear on page, you would think that maybe we're going to get let down by the fact that they've been built up for so much time and in so many different chapters. But they are not a letdown at all. They are some of the most glorious characters in uh, in A Song of Ice and Fire, and especially some of the most fun characters in a not-so-fun book known as Storm of Swords.
1: It's true. As wild well as the stories about Beric are, the, the reality is even crazier. And yeah, I love that with that the little detail about he's, he's called the lightning lord because he strikes like lightning. It makes sense, though, that that's the reputation that would develop in the Riverlands because what do they know about the Stormlands heraldry? Right. Like they don't necessarily, yeah. Beric has never been in the Riverlands before now. So maybe they, they assume that's where the name come from. And that's, you know, Barricks' legend spreads and there's tall tales told about him just like Robin Hood and the Merry Men. So George is definitely playing with information, which I think is part of why he delays so long before we actually meet Barric, So we have this image in our mind and then he can expand upon it. So going into our theory and discussion portion of this episode, there is this interesting little bit in the backstory when Jaime is thinking to himself as to how he came to join the Kingsguard. We find out in this chapter that it was Cersei, not only Cersei who manipulated Jaime into it, but she was somehow able to get the Mad King to appoint Jaime to the Kingsguard. She says, leave it to me, I'll take care of it. And then it happens. So I, I want to talk a, little bit, talk a little bit about how that might have occurred, how Cersei got Jaime onto the Kingsguard. And I think there is an interesting possible precedent here in terms of uh, fire and blood and the backstory of House Targaryen. We learn about uh, Jaehaerys I, the old king, the Targaryen king who reigned the longest, who's generally considered the best. Uh, towards the end of his reign, uh, a lot of the day-to-day business of the kingdom was being carried out by his, his hand, Otto Hightower the extremely uh, proud and haughty dude who would uh, end up leading one side of the dance with the dragons. And also involved in the dance, of course, was his daughter Alicent, who he brought to court. And she was a, a very precocious and, and well-read, uh, beloved young teenager. And she uh, looked after the old king uh, in his uh, in his dotage, in his in his final years on the throne, she looked after him. And I think you can see uh, the, the parallel uh, to Cersei, that Cersei was also the daughter of a proud and haughty hand of the king who was brought to court at, you know, roughly around that same age, actually. Otto might have brought Alicent to court in order to marry Viserys, Viserys I, after his first wife died. As it turns out, it happened. And Jaime thinks Tywin brought Cersei to court in order to marry Rhaegar after his first wife died, which turns out not to happen. Allison, uh, Alicent, as I said, was a constant companion of the old King Jaehaerys in his final years. And Mushroom, the court fool Mushroom, claims in his testimony that Alicent did more than read to him, that there might have been a sexual relationship going on there. Now, as always with Mushroom, you got to take that with a grain of salt. You know, none of the storytellers <laughs> within Fire and Blood have the complete truth. But with that in mind, I, I, you know, I was wondering if you thought it's possible that what Cersei, what might have happened here is that Cersei offered sexual favors to the mad king in order to influence him to put Jaime on the king's guard. We already know she isn't as loyal to Jamie as he has been to her, and I think it it kind of fits these characters. The way like uh, you know Jamie and Cersei sleeping together kind of echoes Targaryen practices, so it kind of makes it kind of makes a, some kind of twisted sense that Cersei would end up in bed with a Targaryen. You have Tywin's resentment for the mad king, which I think is, you know, already well explained, but maybe there's an extra element to that where Tywin picked up on this. And then there's like stuff like Cersei's later lust for wildfire and how to how to Jamie she starts to resemble the Mad King. And I don't think Cersei and Jamie are actually the Mad King's children, as has been theorized, but I wonder if I wonder if there's just kind of a connection between Cersei and Eris we're supposed to pick up
0: on there. What do you think? I think it's a great theory. It's one that I had never considered how Cersei manipulated Eris II into naming Jamie to the King's Guard. And and I do think that there is a precedent in the in a fucked up way in mm-hmm. how Eris and Joanna's relationship, Joanna Lannister's relationship that is ended up being potentially done. So as we know from, from the backstory, especially from the world of ice and fire and a little bit from some things we would find from later chapters that Eris had a real fascination with, with Joanna Lannister, Joanna Lannister was a believe was, I believe she was a lady in waiting to, um, Eris's wife, right? To Riella, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. I could, I could mm-hmm. be wrong on that. And, Aerys took a, a a liking to to Joanna Lannister and it was rumored that they had a sexual relationship back in the day when uh, when when Tywin was was around was around. And then we learned later that during the betting ceremony of 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 Tywin and Joanna that Aerys as Barristan says took liberties with uh with 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 Joanna during during the betting ceremony. And then in the world of ice and fire it's very strongly hinted that many people believe that there was an actual sexual relationship that was ongoing between Joanna and eras that had happened when she was a lady in waiting to Riella, and which might have continued after Tywin and Joanna had been married. And there's, of course, the theory we talked about a thousand years ago. We were doing, I think, John's <laughs> first episode about the, the potential for, uh, for Tyrion being um, being the, the son of eras the second Targaryen, and Joanna Lannister. So if you want to go way back in the archives, listen to that one, you absolutely can. In a fucked up way, you can see why eras might be attracted to Cersei, given that he was attracted to her mother and Cersei from all appearances appears to resemble her, her mother in, in, in many ways. I think that is a strong possibility that Cersei manipulated, manipulated Aerys through, through sexual things as we find out in a feast for crows. And, you know, as we find out in Get back from a feast for crows. We find out in a clash of kings, Cersei is consistently using sex to manipulate the men around her, starting with Jaime, but also getting on to Lancel Lannister, to the Kettleblack brothers, mm-hmm. for, and to Moonboy. For for all we know, so she's she uses sex <laughs> right. in a variety of ways to to ensure that she gets her way. Now, the one thing that I've always been struck by in this chapter is that mention of this one guy by the name of Sir Harlan Grandison, who was mm-hmm. an old man who had died. Right, so. You have to have a vacancy in the King's Guard in order for a King's Guard uh-huh. for someone to be named to the King's Guard. So how do you create a vacancy? Someone has to die. How do you get someone to die? Well, what's something that Cersei is also known for doing? She is known for having people killed and making it look like an accident. Or not like an accident, like they had died peacefully in their sleep, like say uh-huh. the High Septon from a from a Feast for Crows, the one that was named after Tyrion's High Septon was, was killed by the by the mob. In, during the ride in King's Landing, she believes that he is plotting against her, and so she orders one of the Kettleblacks. I believe it's Oswell? Oswell Kettleblack? I think it's she Osney. Orders, Osney? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. She orders it. It's, it's, kinda, it's made really ambiguous in, in the um, in a Feast mm-hmm. for Crows until the very end of her story. That Osni Kettleblack goes and suffocates um the, the High Septon with, with a pillow. And so it looks like that he's died peacefully asleep. He has not died peacefully asleep, he has been murdered by Osni Kettleblack. What I could see happening is that Cersei did something similar, pressing a pillow down on old Sir Harlan Grandison in order to kill this guy, in order to create the vacancy to bring Jaime to court, namely as as one of the Kingsguard to heir as the second Targaryen. I think it all fits with the pattern of behavior established in Cersei's later chapters, especially her point of view chapters. So I I think this these are these are strong theories for why or how rather how Jaime became got his role as the kings as a Kingsguard knight. I am curious, though. It is interesting that we don't really get any mention of either Harlan Granison or Ares the Second Targaryen in Cersei's chapters in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. But I do think this might be something that we will potentially see down the road as it becomes much more relevant to her plot that's likely going to unfold in The Winds of Winter. What do you think, sir?
1: Agreed. I think that's that's the weakest part of this theory is that you'd think Cersei would think about it, given that this would be kind of a big deal. But then again, you know, George, you know, never has Ned directly think the thoughts, Jon Snow is my nephew, because that would be inconvenient. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a POV character is perfectly able to just not thinking about something if George doesn't want them to. And I don't think I don't think it's a huge deal in terms of the story. It's it's not a revelation we have to deal with necessarily, because Jamie and Cersei already have plenty of other fraught stuff in between them at this point. <laughs> but I think it, it does make sense for the origin story of this dynamic to work the same way it it does to, you know, in the present, right? Like even, even back when they were teenagers, it was still kind of working the same way that Jamie was just like being led by the nose without really realizing it and lost in the stories in his head. And Cersei was the more kind of cold arch manipulator, which is one of the great ironies, of course, of the Lannister family is that both Cersei and Tyrion reflect Tywin in some ways. And the one who, reflects Tywin the least is Jaime, even though he's the, he's the able-bodied male heir. He's the one Tywin would hmm. want to follow him. But it's the other two that Tywin's kind of rejected that feel more like him because uh, Cersei uh, using her manipulative tactics and uh, Tyrion, of course, there's plenty in common with Tywin that we've talked about before and will again. But it's just, yeah, that's the, it's just the, the sordid sleazy story of the Lannisters. And I think the, the more rocks you uncover with this family, the more bugs you find <laughs> squirming around underneath.
0: And I, I think that'll, that'll be true to the very end of the story. So I think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie, 2 As always, thank you so much for listening to us and thank you for all of our patrons for supporting us. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts.
1: You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash You can follow us on Twitter at Nautacast or shoot us an email at Nautacast at gmail.com. You
0: can find me at PoorQuentin Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is, is brendabeefish.substack.com. We
1: want to shout out and thank our High Lords and Ladies on Patreon. Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Set San Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderly, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merrifull, Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planetos Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, James of House Keen, Lord of the Forest City, Admiral of the Cuyahoga and Warden of the Western Reserve, Lady Can of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine, and Sir Andrew of Htown. Thank you so much as always to our High Lords and Ladies. We really appreciate your support.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for supporting us. It means a lot to both of us. So, join us next week for a Storm of Swords Tyrion 2, in which let's talk about Shay Baby. Yes, it's a episode all about Varys and Tyrion and Shay and having sex on stones. It's great. I would watch Varys sing salt and pepper. That's a,
1: that sounds perfect. I want, I want a eunuch singing all the sexy songs. That's, that's, <laughs> uh, that's,
0: that'd be perfect. I want, a, I want a whole cover album from him on the subject. I'm down. I'm ready to do it. We should do that. We should make that our, our contribution, our <laughs> actual <laughs> contribution to the Song of Ice and Fire fandom. Is, Absolutely. is the singer. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons, patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for A Storm Soar's Tyrion 2.